You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, even though we are continuing our series through Genesis this summer, we're going to begin this morning in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I'll do what I don't usually do, which is start off just right uh, with the passage immediately. It's funny when you uh, are in seminary classes or you're taking preaching classes or coaching or some consultant comes to your church and evaluates things and tells you later how to do it. They always talk about how important it is that you've, you've got to have a hook at the beginning of your message. You've got to have uh, some compelling story or deep, thoughtful question or, or something that, that uh, draws your listeners in, um, maybe. Uh, I tend to think spiritually, if you've been here 15 or 20 minutes already worshiping, um, reciting a, a, a biblically faithful catechism, spending time in prayer, and you're not ready by now, no little story from me is going to do it. So we're going to jump straight in to Romans chapter 4, reading verses 18 to 25. Romans chapter 4, 18 to 25. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it is credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We acknowledge you as a creator of heaven and earth and all that is. God is the sovereign ruler over all that exists, Lord, over the course of human history, over the rise and fall of nations and peoples and rulers. God, over the very course of our individual lives. Father, we trust in your providence this morning, your ability and desire to guide our lives, your church, and indeed your world to fulfill the purposes and the redemptive direction that you've decreed. God, we come before you this morning from all different places. God, we 
gather this morning as a church from different backgrounds, Lord, carrying different weights, Father, having different hopes and dreams, bearing this morning different wounds, scars, insecurities, questions, and doubts. Father, we as an act of obedient will place them before you and ask that you would speak to us through your spirit to the glory and good of your son. I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let's look back again at Abraham, reminding ourselves, just as the Apostle Paul said in Romans, that it is the very work of God in our lives and our response to that by which we're justified, the same as it was in Abram's life. And we're going to find out again this morning, as if we didn't know it from last week, that everyone in the Bible has feet of clay. Right? There's no perfect person. And if by chance you took some time last night and read even part of Genesis 16 through 22, you should feel better about your life, your marriage, and your family. Because if Genesis does nothing else, it should make us feel better about our own families and many of our choices. We know that in Genesis 12, God had come to Abram. We know that he'd come to Abram earlier while he was still in Mesopotamia and called him to go to follow him. He calls Abraham into a covenant relationship with him. He promises to bless him that he might be a blessing to others. He promises to bless those that bless him and his people and to curse those that curse Abram and his people. He promises them a land and descendants. And yet, over a decade has passed, and we pick up the story in Genesis 16, and there is no heir. We can imagine probably the ups and the downs of waiting, probably on a monthly basis. Is this the month that Sarah will be pregnant? Month after month, year after year, a decade passes. And it should cause us to wonder what it means to be people of faith in the real world, right? In the world of broken relationships, of false hopes, of imperfect obedience, of fallenness, of sin, of disappointment in others and ourselves. This morning we're going to see just three characteristics of faith in the real world. The first one we see right off the bat in chapter 16, faith in the real world is messy and imperfect. How many of you could raise your hands this morning and say, you found that to be true in your own life, in your own attempt to walk with Jesus, that as the years pass, you find it to be a bit, a bit messy and imperfect. Would anybody say that's been your story? Yes. And it gets frustrating and discouraging. But I'll say this morning, church, you're in good company. Let's look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, I want to pause here before I go any further. And I want to remind you that when you open the Bible, you enter a world, a culture, a time in human history, 
a place in human history that was very, very different from ours. And if you and I want to glean all that God has for us in his word, it would do us well to spend some time studying because we have those resources in abundance in our culture and our time in history. Do some time studying, spend some time studying biblical backgrounds and cultural narratives from Scripture. Uh, In their great book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, which we have out here in the bookstore, Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien say this, we can easily forget that Scripture is a foreign land and that reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. He's talking about to us as modern Western people. To open the Word of God is to step into a strange world where things are very unlike our own. Most of us don't speak the languages. We don't know the geography or the customs or what behaviors are considered rude or polite, and yet we hardly notice. And for us, when it comes to the issue of slavery or servants, we have especially discolored lenses due to our own past as a nation. And sometimes uh, we forget that though race-based chattel slavery, as we experienced it um, in our history as a nation, has not been that common throughout history, slavery has been extremely common. Every culture, every people group, every nation of every inhabited continent. And so it was in Abram's day. And because the Bible simply makes a statement about something, or tells the people how they are to live in a structure or system as the people of God does not mean God condones that. And you look at that as you look at the movement of scriptures, God placing restrictions that would eventually strangle out certain practices in human history. But Sarah, Abram's wife, you remember Abram and Sarah are wealthy. They have servants, they have money, they have property. But Sarah herself has an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Verse 2 says that she said to Abram, that is Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, a couple of things here. One, this was common custom in the day. So this was uh, culturally normative. This was not outside the bounds of law as such existed in this culture and this time. Bond servants, women who had female servants and slaves, were permitted customarily by the standards of the day to use them as surrogates as they please. It doesn't make it right. But it does mean that what Sarah is doing is normal as they look around. And part of what God's got to do with his people in their day and with us today is to constantly pull our faces back from what we look around and see as normal and remind us that we belong to him. And he decides for us what is normal in our culture and in our day. And it doesn't change because it's recorded in his word. Now, Sarah, she, if you look at verse 2 carefully, you'll see interesting wording. Perhaps I can build a family through her. You ever been tempted to just stop waiting on God? 
If you haven't, you haven't walked very long with God. How many of you love to wait? Who in here would say you are especially good temperamentally at waiting? We don't like it. Waiters don't like it. And waitresses, you can barely sit down and they come by. You know what you want? You know what you want to drink? Like I don't even have a menu here. We're not good at waiting. But I'll tell you, when we jump the gun, we make a mess of things. Abraham agreed, or Abram agreed to what Sarah said. A bit passive on Abram's part, don't you think? Abram, great man of God, who now for more than 10 years has followed the voice of this one who says, I will do this work through you, for you, and ultimately for the whole world. And then she says, hey, here's Hagar. Go sleep with her. I think I can move this thing along here while God's napping. And Abraham gives her a biblical exposition of why that would be wrong. He didn't have a Bible. But gives her an exposition of what the Lord had said to him. The covenant promises. No, he doesn't. He just agrees. He just agrees. Okie dokie, Sarah. Verse 3, so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now, have you ever noticed that when you attempt to do even God's work your way and in your timing, it blows up? Maybe some of you don't. (laughs) Maybe if you're honest, you're like, I don't know. I don't know I ever attempted to do God's work. But I will say, If you ever attempt to do something that God has clearly commanded us to do, but do it your way and in your timing, you make a mess of things. Hagar conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. See how the sin just begins to permeate everyone involved right now? Hagar, who's been innocent of this whole mess, now is conceived and sort of has an an air of haughtiness is what um, the phrasing here means. She may be the bond servant, the slave, but she's the one who can conceive. So she looks down her nose at Sarah. Verse 5, then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Now I know some of you men are tempted to say women, right? I wouldn't say that. I would say that Proverbs warns us that it's more enjoyable to live on the corner of your roof than inside the home with a contentious woman. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't help that. Um, (laughs) This is just like us as human beings, isn't it though? Sarah's like, Abram, this God who's been talking to you is not, 10 years, a decade has passed. Nothing's happening. Take Hagar, sleep with her. Maybe I can build this thing for myself through her. Okay, sweetie. Ba-dunk, ba-dunk, bump. Comes back. What have you done? You did this to me. And he's like, I don't, I don't even know what you're mad about. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now she's getting haughty. 
may God decide whether you're right or I'm right. I will say, husbands and wives, I wouldn't take that tone in your home. May God decide between you and between me. Your slave, Abram says, is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Again, a bit passive on Abram. He's failing to be again and again the man that God has called him to be. To take responsibility for himself, for his actions, for the direction of his life, for his relationship, covenant relationship with God, for his faithfulness to God and to his wife. And he blames everyone but himself. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar and she's fled from her. Now the Lord meets Hagar out in the wilderness, brings Hagar back home, continues to work here. But it's such a picture of the messiness and the imperfection of faith in the real world. When we feel like maybe God's just not doing what he's supposed to do. Maybe he's given up. You won't find this uh, in your notes on the app or on the screen, but uh, regarding this passage, Alistair Begg said um, this question. Will they allow the questions of their hearts to overcome their faith? Or will they allow their faith to overcome the questions of their heart? Let me ask you that this morning. Because many of you have questions in your heart this morning about an issue going on in your life, about someone in your family you've been praying for for a long time to come to faith in Christ. And you know you're praying in accordance with the will of God and they're simply no closer, at least from your view, from coming to faith, to coming to faith than they were when you first started praying for them. Some of you are praying for other things in your life where you feel like God has led you in a particular direction and the doors simply aren't opening. And we could go on and on with this. But the challenge to you this morning is the same question. Will you allow the questions of your heart to overcome your faith or will you allow your faith to overcome and drive the questions of your heart? The life of faith, the life of faith, the life that we're called to live by grace is to be lived in the area of the will not in the realm of the emotions. I want to say that again. The life of faith that you and I are called to live is, is to be lived out in the realm of the will, not the emotions. When it comes to faith, our emotions must capitulate to our wills. Here, Sarah is frustrated. She's sick of waiting. She's tired of waiting. Apparently, so is Abram. Because as I said, he's extremely passive through all of this. But it's faith, not human emotions, and faith, not human reason that we're called to live by. When you and I start looking around and start trying to decide what is right and wrong, what should and should not be done, based on our emotional state, based on what seems reasonable to us, we veer off into all kinds of weird places. I want to read to you this morning um, something that's uh, been in the news since last week from a church service, a Lutheran church, and I use that, uh, that word for church in this case simply to mean nothing more than a building, uh, but a Lutheran church as it were, in Minneapolis. Many of you will be familiar with the Apostles' Creed. How many of you would say you're, you're fairly familiar, at least, with the Apostles' Creed, remotely? 
Yeah, yeah. One of the oldest, in a sense, statements of Christian faith, dating back to maybe 150 years or so after the death of the apostles, that was designed to guard the church to hold to orthodox biblical faith, says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead, which I would, uh, I would call that into question as most Protestant would. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the Holy Christian or Universal Church, not Roman Catholic Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, in 2021, a minister at a Church of Christ Church in Kentucky came up with a different creed, the Sparkle Creed. The Sparkle Creed. And this last week, this video is online. You can watch it of a Lutheran minister leading their congregation to recite with them the Sparkle Creed, which clearly they know well. It says this, I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to teach, uh, the calling uh, to each of us that love is love is love. So beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief, amen. That's the Sparkle Creed being recited now in some churches across our nation. This particular minister went on to lead the congregation in a pastoral prayer, some of which I wrote down for you. We pray for the summer solstice and the beginning of the new season, for honeybee populations experiencing extreme loss for climate justice advocacy efforts, for the joy of life and community, we pray especially for all who will attend the Twin Cities Pride Festival and other Pride events this month. We give thanks for the extraordinary clergy who lead this congregation and beyond, and for all LGBTQIA leaders who serve as teachers, architects, first responders, business owners, city council members, and more. For everyone who feels excluded on account of their gender, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, country of origin, or any other human distinction, draw us together in relationship and make your people one. For Taylor Swift and her Swifty fans, I'm not making this up, and all music that inspires us, and then taking pieces of lines from Taylor Swift's song, she says, help us to shake it off when life takes a turn. Remind us that we can still make the whole place shimmer. And when the time comes, help us confess and say, hi, it's me. I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> this kind of heretical, delusional gibberish 
is the direction we go without being anchored in God's Word because God does not care what modern Americans think. God does not care what modern Western advocacy groups believe is right and wrong. We are His creation. We are accountable to Him. Now, before we get too high and mighty, I've thought about writing one for us Bible belters. And I may do that. It'll talk about the Friday night football teams, the the glorious advance of our troops bringing democracy around the world. Our God, the victorious rebel republic democracy bringer. Anytime we look anywhere outside of God's word for a worldview and a structure and a value system as God's people, we fall. And our faith gets even messier and even more imperfect. It it broke my heart to watch this foolishness. There's about a four-minute, there's a 30-second clip you can see. The four-minute one is better. The four-minute one you see the congregation. And to my surprise, the vast majority of the congregation were senior adults. I was stunned by that. Now, there are families and young adults too. But I wondered if my mind, if this wasn't a congregation where Quite many of the older members were longtime faithful Lutherans who over the course of the last decade have been slowly, gradually led into false teaching by what Jesus and the Apostle Paul would describe as wolves in sheep's clothing. False teachers in the, in the church presenting as truth what is not true. Real faith in the real world It's messy and it's imperfect. Abram had this this great promise from God, this covenant relationship with this God who'd already begun cleaning messes up. But Sarah and Abram couldn't keep it together. This won't be up on the screen, but verse 15 says, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, if you know your Bible well, you'll know, and we'll see in just a minute part of this, that that God remains true to Abram, and he even blesses, in a kind of common grace way, Ishmael and his descendants. But the sin of Sarai and Abram would have historic and eternal consequences, because through Ishmael's line comes one of the other great monotheistic religions of the world, the Muslims, Arabs, Islamic faith, trace their heritage and their lineage back to Abraham through Ishmael. Even today, the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac, the son of promise, remain at war with one another. But faith in the real world isn't just messy, thank God, and isn't just imperfect. It is dependent on God's faithfulness and grace. It is dependent on God's faithfulness. See, you and I sometimes get this idea that we're utterly dependent on God's faithfulness and His grace when we come to faith in Christ, and then after that, it's largely up to us. It's about our quiet time and our obedience, and I'm not going to downplay obedience. I'll get to that. But I'll tell you, you have no hope to walk in faith with God and to operate in obedience without the faithfulness and the grace of God. Look at chapter 17. You would think if you were humanly looking at this story, 
you would think that God's going to come to Abram in judgment and righteous anger. He had every right to do so. But look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Do you see what God's doing? He's doing the same thing he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's doing the same thing that Jesus does with Peter after he rejects Christ. He's coming back to Abram and through Abram to Sarai and eventually directly to Sarai who is soon to become Sarah. And he's renewing relationship with them. He's restoring a sense of what they've broken there. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be, you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I have made you a father. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. If you are in groups and you met this week, then you had an opportunity to discuss the significance of these I will, I will, I will, I will statements from God. To discuss uh, the, the sovereign and good and gracious God that is behind his people, doing in and through them what we cannot do ourselves. Verse 8, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. See, there's obedience. There's something that is required. Now, it's required after God has already come and established this covenant relationship with Abraham. In other words, because I am who I am and because you are who you are as my child, as a follower of mine, as someone in covenant relationship with me, you are to live a covenant faithful life. This is my covenant, verse 10, with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. I can just imagine Abraham thinking, Noah got a rainbow. Could we do that? Or maybe could like the morning mist be my covenant? If it's all the same to you. I'm not an eight day old little boy, God. I'm, I'm a grown man. But God gives a covenant, and God gives a covenant that can be used to include different people as the mission of God begins to take speed and take hold in and through Israel. Men from other tongues and tribes and ethnicities could be included in the people of God through the act of circumcision and their families under and through them. It's a beautiful picture 
of God's faithfulness and His grace. He comes, He restores, He restates, He gives a sign of the covenant relationship He has with Abraham and his descendants. Old Testament scholar and theologian Christopher Wright says circumcision was more than just an outward ritual. It involved the commitment of the heart to practical obedience. That was a truth well perceived in the Old Testament itself. It did not need Paul to point it out for the first time in Romans 2, 25 to 29. Let me read that to you briefly. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 29. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Let me just, I'll just pause there. What Paul is doing is, is beginning to build his case that both Jews and Gentiles stand together before God in need of his grace, in need ultimately of redemption through Jesus Christ, regardless of whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised physically. That God never intended his ultimate redemptive purposes in human history to be about one nation or one people. Rather, through one nation and one people, he would reach to the ends of the earth. Faith in the real world is messy, it's imperfect. It depends on God's faithfulness and God's grace. God has to come to us. Look at chapter 21. Skip over. I know we're, we're skipping a couple of chapters, but I'll just tell you this to summarize what we're skipping. Abraham gets some things right. He gets some things wrong. Sarah gets some things right. Sarah gets some things wrong. So it goes with us as we're growing in our dependence and our trust of God. Verse 1 of chapter 21, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. God has come to Sarai and changed her name to Sarah. As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Whatever you're waiting on in your life, wherever your hope is in danger of faltering, know that we serve a God who does what he promises. He does what he says he will do. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. Some of you need to underline that or highlight that in your Bible. See, he wasn't late or slow. It seemed that way to Sarah. It seemed that way to Abraham. I'm sure it seemed that way to Hagar, Ishmael. But he wasn't slow. God stands outside of time. And at the very season when God intended it to take place, it took place. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, sometimes people say, yeah, but they lived longer in that day. They did. But a hundred is still a hundred. And the whole point of this story is that it was physically impossible. Humanly impossible. In every way conceivable. In creation, impossible. That's why Paul describes Sarah's womb as dead. Paul's using that language intentionally as a prototype and metaphor for redemption. 
for God bringing life out of death. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And everyone did laugh. They laughed when Sarah and Abraham went to the store and they bought baby formula and insure. Baby diapers and depends. And they headed out. Now, if you continue in chapter 21, I'll just summarize most of it. Sarah now has her son by God. And instead of it bolstering her faith and making her more warm, it turns her heart even more toward and against Hagar and Ishmael. And she says to Abraham, get rid of them. That boy will have no inheritance with my son. Verse 14 of chapter 21, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. The boy, by this time, is around 14 years old. And if you can imagine the dysfunction that Ishmael's grown up in, there's no doubt when you give a careful reading to the text that Abraham loved Ishmael. But Ishmael's raised in this, this trinity of dysfunction in the home, raised with a stepmother who despises him and his birth mother, raised with a stepmother who, who uh, customarily and socially had authority over him and could lord whatever she wanted over him. Yet with a birth mother there who loved him, who also had to be subservient to the stepmother. Can you, can you imagine? And I can just, the text doesn't tell us this, but I can imagine the only reprieve Ishmael had from this was out working during the day with his dad. He and Abe out, looking at the animals, surveying their wealth, having people fix fence. And now he's been put out. Severed from his relationship with his dad. He knows he's going to die. And in Ishmael's world, by 14, you had seen plenty of both animals and people die. And he knew that to die of dehydration or sun exposure was an extremely unpleasant way to go. But God heard. Man, and if you've been through LM Institute classes or you've listened in here, you know that when God sees or God hears in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean he paused the TV during a commercial and began listening to his people again. It means he's getting ready to act. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. In a, in a picture of salvation there where there's no hope, there's no ability to see any way out of this, God opens her eyes and she sees the well. She went and filled the skin of water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. 
God was with the boy. This is the same language God will use for Abraham and Isaac. God doesn't throw Ishmael away, though he will not be the child of the promise, the heir of the covenant with Abraham. Faith in the real world depends on God's faithfulness and his grace. His faithfulness and grace to Sarah, his faithfulness and grace to Abraham, his faithfulness and grace to Hagar, to Ishmael, to everyone. Finally, faith in the real world, trust in God's word rather than human circumstances. This is easy to say that faith in the real world, if we're going to be living it out, trusts in God's word rather than human circumstances. But all around us today, and I'm talking about in the church, I don't expect people outside the church to trust in God's word and not human circumstances, but Christ followers struggle to do this. And you have to wonder, by the time we get to chapter 22, let's just look at the beginning here, one of the most famous chapters in the Old Testament, many of you know it well. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, the writer of Genesis is wanting to set it up right here and say, this is a test. This is only a test. Some of you remember that time back in television history. When they would ruin 30 seconds of your life with that squawk on the screen. They would say, this is a test. This is only a test of your whatever broadcast system. There's not a real tornado coming. Man, it's because I grew up in Tornado Alley. Whatever it was here, the writer wants us to know this is a test. He says to Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Moriah, where one day the temple would be built. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now Abraham's heard that before, hasn't he? Some of you, if you were here last week, will remember Genesis 12, verse 1. Go, leave your people, leave your land, Leave your prosperity, leave your heritage, leave your comfort, and go where? To a land that I will show you. God has been growing Abraham's faith. He's been growing your faith across the years. He's been increasing your ability to trust him. But now, it has to be difficult for Abraham. It has to look like the command of God The command of God is now destroying the promise of God. Go and sacrifice Isaac. Isaac, my son. And the language here is intentional. Your only son whom you love. Obviously, Isaac was not his only son, but he was the only son of the promise, the heir of the covenant. And it's language we see again in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's language we see at Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So what does Abraham do? He does what God has commanded him to do. This is why, church, this is why you cannot build your faith on your emotions. You cannot build your faith on human reason. You cannot build your faith on circumstances around you. And what your culture says is right or wrong in a given season. And what the Supreme Court says is right or wrong in a given season. And what the Western world or the Eastern world or the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere says is right or wrong at a given time in human history. 
but you trust in the word of God. It was this same kind of question that had to have come to Jesus in the wilderness. As Satan comes and says, ha, you're the promised redeemer sent by the Father, but it looks like you're going to starve to death out here. It looks like the command of God to go into the wilderness is the death of the promise of God for you to be the redeemer. So why don't I just encourage you to turn some stones into bread? That same voice comes to us today. So early the next morning, Abraham gets up. He loads up his donkey. He takes two servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he sets out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. On the third day. What happens on the third day? Deliverance happens on the third day. Redemption happens on the third day. Sin and death and darkness and hell is defeated on the third day. God is telling us here that something is coming. He's pointing us forward. Verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Do you hear that statement of faith, of trust in Abraham, who didn't know how this was going to happen? Abraham had seen hundreds and hundreds of sacrifices, just like the one God had called him to make. Living in a pagan land with pagan gods and pagan religions, human sacrifice was the, 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 the way of the street. It was as normal as any other customary practice in their day. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. Do you understand that giving something to God is an act of worship? Do you understand that part of what we do when we receive offering, when you go online by text or you go online on the website or you mail in a check or you bring in a check, part of what you're doing is, is giving God an act of worship. You're worshiping him in that act of obedience and trust in him. And when you don't, if you claim the name of Christ, you're denying your trust in him and your worship of him. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. Abraham and Isaac began to, to go up the mountain. Verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replies. The fire and wood are here. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? See, Isaac had seen sacrifices too. Child sacrifice was extremely common. They're going up this mountain with everything needed to offer a religious sacrifice except one thing, a live animal. And you wonder what Isaac is wondering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Now, here's where the story had to have gotten incredibly real for Abraham. And for Isaac, I want your parents to think about this. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I want you to imagine if you have children this morning, what it would be like for God to come to you in a vision, in a dream, and speak to you clearly so that there's no confusion about who God's speaking and saying, I am going to take your child 
and names one of your children. Soon in death as an offering to me. And I want you to treat it as an act of worship. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He says in verse 12, don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't do anything to him. I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from your son, uh, from him, your son, your only son. What is it this morning that you withhold from God? Every single one of us in here withholds things from our creator and our redeemer and the lover of our souls because we don't trust him with it. We don't trust his love for us. We don't trust his provision for us. But Abraham looked up in verse 13, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this place it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It will be provided. The truth of this is that Abraham's son in his sinful state could no more be offered as a sacrifice to the living and true God than Abraham could offer anything else. But there was one who would come who was without spot or blemish, without guilt and without sin, who would be offered as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. And when you run onto passages like this, it's easy just to move right past them. C.S. Lewis, in Letters to Malcolm, says this, the troublesome fact, the apparent absurdity, which can't be fitted into any synthesis we have yet made, is precisely the one we must not ignore. When you run onto a statement, a story, a command, a question that doesn't seem to fit what you know of God, C.S. Lewis says, don't ignore it, don't speed past it, drop anchor there. Ten to one, it's in that cover the fox is lurking. There's always hope if we keep an unsolved problem fairly in view. There's none if we pretend it's not there. And Lewis goes on to say, it's in these places of wrestling that God brings the greatest growth to us. Alistair Begg said that if we seek to avoid the inevitable tests of faith, we never enjoy its unspeakable compensations. We say that again. If we seek to avoid the inevitable tests of faith, if you run from the places of discomfort where God is leading you, if you refuse him what he's asking of you in basic obedience, you never enjoy the unspeakable compensations that come with faith itself. I'll end this morning as I ended last week with a statement from um, the late Ed Clowney. I said last week Ed Clowney was a, uh, a professor of preaching, biblical studies, theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, was one of the great pioneers of, of understanding 
the gospel throughout all of Scripture, of understanding the centrality of Jesus in all of Scripture. Clowney says this about what we've been looking at this morning. The life of Abraham was a pilgrimage of faith. His faith had been drawn to the point of absurdity. What else would you call the covenant God who's promised you a child and promised to bless the entire world eventually through that child? What else would you call the command of that God now to take that child up onto a mountainside, murder him, and offer him as a sacrifice? His faith had been drawn to the point of absurdity, but he had learned that no word of God is void of power. Have you learned that yet this morning? That no word of God is void of power. No promise of God is void of power. No command of God is void of power. No request made by God to you is void of power. To trust in God means to look to him alone, to find in him all our hope, to hold nothing back, no reserve. Faith is commitment. Church, this is where God is calling you this morning, and this is where he's calling us as a church to follow, holding nothing back, no reserve, full commitment and trust in him whose word is never found void of power. Let's stand and pray. Actually, remain seated. We're gonna do offering. You guys can remain seated. A little exercise for some of you that stood and then sat. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to worship this morning by you, our great provider, by the one who walks with us, with us across the years of faith in a real world, of faith among real people whose lives are messy and imperfect. God, but whose faith is utterly dependent upon your faithfulness to us and to your promises, your grace and initiative in our lives. God, we thank you this morning that by your mercy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to walk in deep trust of your word rather than the circumstances of our lives. And God, it is in the context of this relationship with you that we come to the point in our service this morning where we receive offering. God, Abraham was willing to give his son. It's amazing to me that so many of us struggle simply to be faithful to you financially. God, forgive us. May your work never be limited by our unfaithfulness and disobedience. God, I lift up to you now and hold before you those who are about to give this morning. It is a sacred and a holy act. It is an act of worship. It is a tangible declaration of trust in the one who provides and holds us secure. Bless them, God. Bless those who've given throughout this week. Take all that's given, stretch it, multiply it. Use it for your glory. Use it to lift up your son in a world so deeply confused. Use it in mercy ministry to meet the needs of those around us. God, remind us as we prepare to give that on the other end of every gift, on the end of generosity, is a met need and a changed life. Move in our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. 
For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.